0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined as always by writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Hey, Jane. Have you ever been to the Louvre? Uh, I have once, actually. I had to rush through it because I didn't have much time. But I did see the Mona Lisa. Oh, well, did you see the Code of Hammurabi? I didn't. I didn't get around to that. It's one of those things that isn't as aesthetically appealing as the Mona Lisa or the sundry other works of art hanging in the Louvre. But it's a pretty important piece of, well big black stone. It's basically a big stella, uh, which just means monument, basically. Stella! <laughs> no, just kidding.
1: It's more important than that. <laughs> it stands about a little over seven feet tall. The uh, monument itself isn't as important as what actually is written on it. And it has about 300 laws on it. It's all written in sort of a conditional, if this then that uh, format. And it's really, it's it's fascinating for archaeologists and historians because it's one of the earliest and most intact codes of law that has ever
0: been found. And it was developed by Hammurabi, and he is synonymous with Babylon. And Babylon was really one of the first really sort of bustling empires of the ancient world. And he was a really intelligent ruler, and one of the things that he prided himself on was being fair and just. And he really laid out his expectations for his subjects in black and white. And the Code of Hammurabi exemplifies this because he made them available for everyone to see, and he displayed them in a very public place. So while Hammurabi was pretty strict, and he held his people accountable for their behavior in a very severe way, there really was no excuse for breaking the law, because you would have seen it very clearly. And so the monument, like we said, today is in the Louvre, and that's because in 1901 a French archaeologist found it and he didn't find it in Babylon. He actually found it in uh, a really mountainous sort of remote region of Persia and presumably it's because one of the later conquerors who came in to overthrow Babylon would have taken the code back as part of the spoils and
1: Sort really, of a trophy of yeah, battle, it's sort of yeah.
0: symbolic of look at this very mighty empire and mm-hmm. how it's fallen. But what Jane and I are really interested in is the code itself and what it means, not just in the ancient Babylonian society, but today. That's right. And uh, historians, anyone who's interested in the history
1: of law in general, love looking at the Code of Hammurabi because it's one of the earliest we know of. To give you an idea of how like detailed these laws can get, um, you look at number fifty nine. Says. If any man without the knowledge of the owner of a garden Fell a tree in a garden He shall pay half a mina in money This is incredibly detailed, specific law And this is one of the reasons why um, Historians actually don't think the code stood on its own As sort of an independent in and of itself Because it has these very de- detailed laws Like the one I mentioned But it doesn't have some more obvious ones That you would expect More overarching laws This is what happens when you murder someone in general Sort of mm-hmm. something like that that, but it's, it's very detailed. So historians tend to think that it was sort of an addition to laws that were right. already on the books, so to speak,
0: um, but that have been lost to history. So it's supplemental. And like Jane was mentioning, they're so specific. One has to wonder if these laws were written after some sort of event occurred that set a precedent for needing a certain rule. Like, for instance, one that struck me really interesting is this law that reads. If a man give his child to a nurse and the child die in her hands, but the nurse, unbeknownst to the father and mother, nurse another child, then they shall convict her of having nursed another child without the knowledge of the father and mother. Here's the clincher. And her breasts shall be cut off. Ugh. So, heaven forbid you be a wet nurse, an ancient Babylon. But um, a law like this, really, it just sort of smacks of... Well, something must have happened for them to have written this law. It just doesn't strike me as likely that that Hammurabi would have, you know, written this as one of the codes without some sort of precedent. Yeah, and I think historians
1: actually look at this and they say, you know, maybe um, there were laws on the books and everything, but that specific... Cases would come up to Hammurabi himself and he would make an executive decision that weren't addressed previously in the law. And these decisions that he made ended up being written um, because he was so proud of how just he is, obviously, that he wrote them on the on the books uh, on his Stella. But also um, another reason why historians think it didn't stand on its own was because there are some inconsistencies, interestingly, on uh, the Code of Hammurabi, for instance. If we were in ancient Babylon, you and me, and I gave you like a mule for safekeeping Thanks, uh, while I, I love was on my vacation, mule. <laughs> sure, I trust you. Um, <laughs> so if I gave it to you, but I didn't have any witnesses and I didn't have a contract, in one law it says that I, the giver, I don't have a claim on that mule anymore. But in another instance, a very the, the exact same kind of situation, it says that you would be at
0: fault and you would actually be a thief and you would be put to death. That's what's so funny to me about the Code of Hammurabi. Not the inconsistencies, but mm. what you were mentioning before. If, if I didn't have any proof that you had given me this mule, there's no room for hearsay in the code. Evidence is absolutely imperative. And so I guess that's the good news if you are an accused perpetrator, not yet an accused criminal. You know, if they say that you've stolen something in ancient Babylon, well, you better have the thing that you are thought to have stolen in your possession. Mm -hmm. If they say that you've committed adultery, well, some peeping Tom better have seen you, you know, ravishing somebody else's wife. There has to be evidentiary support. And once you were accused as a criminal, there were sort of two ways out. One of them was death, which we'll get to in just a minute. And the other was this sort of witchcraft trial you could undergo in the Euphrates River. And again, historians conjecture that people in ancient Babylon hadn't really mastered the art of swimming. So you could wade into the river and if you sank and drowned, then you were guilty and, you know, good riddance, you were dead, you were put to death. But if for some magical reason the water was able to convey you back to shore and you came out alive, then you were innocent and you were allowed to keep your life. And it's interesting, they're, they're very creative when it came to ways to
1: die as well. Um, I think it was about 28 different crimes warrant death in, in these laws. They range from things like robbery, uh, adultery. Maybe witchcraft, similar to what you were talking about, and even harboring a runaway slave, which kind of harkens back to our Mm -hmm. podcast on the Underground Railroad. So in some other ways you could die besides this uh, interesting witchcraft, whether you uh, sink or swim, was uh, burning, buried alive, which is my personal favorite, um, or least favorite, I should say, and also impalement.
0: Uh, so they were very creative when it came to ways to die. You say that with such relish. I feel no. like now I have a an ally in My, uh, my interest <laughs> no. in medieval forms of torture. No. <laughs> um, anyway, for all of you out there who think I'm I'm a strange bird, um, <laughs> the people in ancient Babylon had a very specific idea of justice, and it was rooted in a code called the Lex Talionis, which is the law of retaliation or the law of retribution. And surely you've all heard the expression, and. For an eye. And that's exactly what Lex Talionis was. It was a, a form of justice uh, based on the idea that whatever wrongdoing you pay to your neighbor, your neighbor can pay back to you. But an important difference under the code of Hammurabi is that if you created some sort of affront to your neighbor, your neighbor couldn't be the one to turn around and pay you back for that misdeed. It would have to come directly from the state government. And that was to put an end to a cycle of wrongdoing back and forth because it came from a higher power, the sort of retribution.
1: That's really interesting, yeah. And um, another thing that really intrigues historians, especially like as soon as they found uh, the Code of Hammurabi, was that they they had known the idea of Lex Talionis before from from Mosaic Law, you know, from Moses. And they thought, well, you know, this outdates Moses by a couple hundred years. So does that mean that Moses got these ideas from the Code of Hammurabi or from B- Babylonia in general? And that idea has sort of been um, pushed aside for the idea that they both have a common source among them. Uh, so it's interesting just to see the the differences, the similarities between the two different ways of, of handling, you know if someone plucks out your eye, what do you do in response uh, one important difference though is that under the code of Hammurabi, class actually made a difference, so for instance if I were uh, among the upper class in ancient Babylonia, called the Amalu, and Candace was a slave in the wardy class <laughs> and I plucked out her eye shouldn't she couldn't necessarily have my eye plucked out as well, but if was the other way around. If Candace plucked out my eye,
0: uh, the thing it would be much much harsher on her as a punishment. So, just to make sure I understand this, if I plucked out your eye, I might. A certain death, but if you pluck my eye out, you might only owe me a small monetary mountain compensation. Right? Exactly but enough it, to buy a new eye. I don't know no, about that. not necessarily.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but like if I if it happened between people of the same class, you would have that eye for an eye thing business going on. Right. Whereas the Moses mosaic law uh, didn't have that distinction. So that's one big thing that, that historians it's a point that historians want to make that it's very different.
0: So I have a couple of friends in law school, and I meant to ask them about the Cut of Hammurabi over the weekend, and I didn't get a chance because I was busy watching the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if any of you out there are in law school or any lawyers who might be fans of our podcast, Um I'm curious to know what you study about the Code of Hammurabi, if anything, in law school. I mean, I'm sure that there's a period of time in which you look over laws of the ancient world and how they might still be relevant today. And I I wonder if this eye-for-an-eye business is just sort of a... a a clever phrase that people throw around. And if that's all it's been reduced to, then I would like to propose in its place another clever phrase, which is do unto others as you would have done unto you. Because I think the golden rule, in this instance at least, is pretty similar and much nicer. Yeah, the whole turn the other cheek thing. Yeah, I would like to not have my eye plucked (laughs) out. So I'm going to not pluck Jane's out. (laughs) It's a good way to live. It it still has a lot of
1: relevance to today. I mean, just thinking of at the time, it must have seemed... Very fair, you know? I mean, if you look at it from just a cold point of view, I mean that that's
0: fair, I guess, in a, in a weird way of looking at it. But I think that the people of ancient Babylon were on to something. You can't just have your neighbors, you know, sort of propagate this this misdeed cycle to each other. There has to be a, a higher level of government in place to put an end That's to true. it, to deal out the final say in retribution. Otherwise, you've got a society that devolves into complete chaos. Yeah, and it's so. interesting that Hammurabi
1: himself found himself so just. He expresses, and there's a prologue and an epilogue on the uh, Stella that, co- that contains the code, and he expressed, like, oh, I protect the oppressed from the oppressors, and it's interesting that he still had these laws laws that that did distinguish between the classes
0: too he was a pretty complex guy and if you want to learn more about Hammurabi and his code and the peoples of ancient Babylon be sure to check out our website on howstuffworks.com
1: that's right and also be sure to check out um, a blog that howstuffworks.com is launching uh pretty soon and well one of the blogs is a stuff you missed in history class blog
0: written by yours truly
1: and candace
0: so our blog is another place where you can contact us with your ideas and you can comment on the entries that we post. And in the interim, be sure to keep sending us emails at historypodcast at com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.